0: Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Camp. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy, the third book in the Banneker Bones series uh, that will be available May 15th of this year. So go ahead and pre-order your copy. It's, it's ready to go. I can't wait to share it with you. Uh, if you can't wait that long or if you're new to the Banneker Bones series, make sure you download the first book, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, for free. You can also get it as a paperback and an audiobook. book. the e-book's free. Get it on your Kindle, your Nook, whatever you're reading on. and uh, Go nuts. Uh, or shell out the $10 for the paperback. It's amazing. Um, Under the super-secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some tales for older readers, so check that out as well. You can get the Book of David Chapter 1 for free, as always, to keep up with what's going on the show, uh, who's going to be our upcoming guest, what's going on with me, as well as to read interviews with hundreds of literary agents, authors, publishing professionals, uh, folks that you would be interested in. Head to middlegradeninja.com. I couldn't be more excited today. I'm uh, sitting down here to chat with Sayatara Dasgupta. Uh, Sayasari, how are you today?
1: I'm well, I'm well, thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much for uh, making the time. I know that you're uh, very busy. In fact, one of my burning questions for you is how you make time to do all the things that you do. Uh, But before we get into any of that, uh, probably the best place to start is I am uh, awful about summarizing other people's biographies, other people's books, so I try never to do either. If you would, just give uh, esteemed audience an overview of of you and uh,
1: yeah. Perfect. So uh, my name is Sayantani Tani Thank you again, Rob, for having me on the podcast. Um, I am a pediatrician by training. I also teach in a field called narrative medicine, but I'm here today as the author of the Kiran Mala and the Kingdom Beyond series from Scholastic, the first book of which, The Serpent's Secret, came out in 2018. Uh, Game of Stars came out in 2019, and I'm really excited that The Chaos Curse is coming out on March the 3rd of 2020, the third book in the series. This is my Bengali folktale and string theory inspired series, uh, the second book of which hit the New York Times bestseller list, so we were very thrilled with that. The first book of which was an E.B. White read aloud um, was on, you know, a bunch of other lovely lists. So it's been really exciting. And um, this is the middle grade fantasy adventure series that I needed as a twelve-year-old, and I got to write as a grown-up.
0: Well, I have uh, just enjoyed you reading the audiobook of *The Serpent's Secret*. I'm very excited about the release of *The Chaos Circle*.
1: Congratulations on that. Thank you so uh, much. *The Chaos Curse*. I'm sorry. <laughs> No worries.
0: Uh, we not. were doing this before we started as well. I'm like uh, my uh, wife's father uh, took her once to see the one of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies when she was she was well over the uh, age of 13, just fine. Um, and uh, he got up to the the counter and he couldn't remember it and he said, "Well, just the man with the fingers." Oh. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> uh, I've I've got dad's disease with names of uh, books and movies anymore. <laughs> um, so a couple of uh, questions that I had for you, and then I desperately yeah. want to talk to you more about uh, Kamala and your series. Um, but I did want to ask about your um, early life. Is usually a good spot to start? Because you grew up, I believe, in Ohio, but then you were spending summers in Calcutta. Uh, so how did um, those, I assume, uh, relatively disparate settings, um, how did that uh, shape you as a young person, and what do you feel that's brought to your writing?
1: Yeah, so I am a daughter of Indian immigrants. My parents immigrated from Kolkata, India to first Cincinnati, Ohio, and then uh, Columbus, where I was born. Um, And I grew up till eighth grade in Columbus, Ohio, or outside Columbus, Ohio, Worthington, to be exact. but I would spend my long summer vacations, uh, most of them, in India at my grandparents' house. And it was a really, you know, different existence, as you can imagine. Um, I then subsequently spent my high school years in New Jersey, which is why the Kieran Mala series begins in Parsippany, New Jersey. That um, was one of my burning questions, is how yeah, did you get the Jersey out of yeah, that? Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, we moved when I was in eighth grade from Ohio to New Jersey. And um, it seemed the perfect place to begin my intergalactic, you know, adventure tale was New Jersey, why not? Like what better place to launch off right into the multiverse? Um, But I did grow up in Ohio and um, it was a time when there weren't a lot of kids who were also immigrants or kids of color growing up in the community where I was growing up and that in conjunction with The fact that there weren't a lot of kids of color, or certainly Indian kids, represented in the books that I was reading or the films and TV shows that I was watching, it really was a very specific kind of growing up of not seeing myself kind of reflected out there. Um, or certainly not reflected positively in culture. Like, I don't think you can count the Indiana Jones, the second film, the way that they represented South Asians as positive, right? Um, no, I don't think so. Right, yeah, no offense to Harrison Ford. Positive I was.
0: representation of alligators though, they were very
1: Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but for years, right, I got asked terrible questions about monkey brains and, you know, it was fodder for just a lot of um, bullying and harassment. And it wasn't the kind of time where I was able to see myself Oh, gosh, portrayed like other kids were, like, you know, as a hero of books. And if you never see yourself portrayed as a hero, I think there's a part of you, or certainly there was a part of me that started to think, gosh, well, there's something wrong with me. Like, I don't deserve to be a hero. I don't deserve to be a protagonist, even maybe of my own life. And I think had I not gone on those regular vacations to India and seen people who looked like me and sounded like me and got to hear stories from my grandmother where brown kids like me were out there kind of having adventures, saving the world, um, doing all these wonderful things that I loved reading in other books, right? about other children, um, I might have continued in that idea that, gosh, maybe I don't You know, somebody like me can't be the hero of a story. But it was in those Bengali folktales that I would hear over the summers. Um, There were these fantastic stories about like flying, you know, flying horses and princes and princesses and snake kings and these um, drooly. Uh, rhyming monsters who said things like, you know, dirty socks and stinky feet. I smell royal human meat. And uh, which seems like highly inefficient if you're chasing somebody, right? Like stop with the rhyme. You don't have to come up with verse. Just chase somebody. But I really feel like cross-culturally monsters do this, right? Fifi fi fo I smell the blood of an Englishman. Highly inefficient. And yet Bengali (laughs) rockers do it too, right? Whatever. To each his own. Um, But anyway, there were these fantastic... Fun stories. And um, I really did find a sense of self in those stories, as well as a sense of kind of confidence and self when I would go on these summer vacations to India. And so it wasn't until many years later, when I was a mother myself, that I thought to myself, well, you know, my own children, so many years later, are complaining that at least in the genre that they loved, when they were kind of middle grade readers, they loved fantasy only. Like if there wasn't a flying broomstick or a spell, like they weren't having it. Um, So in their genre, they still, so many years later, didn't see kids who looked like them. So it was only those many years later when I had kids of my own that I thought, well, I don't want my children to grow up with the same feeling that I had in my stomach for so many years, thinking that... This was a problem with me and not racism, not something that was actually outside of myself. It had nothing to do with me. Um, and I just I didn't want my children to grow up with that. And so I thought, well, if I can put one more mirror in the world where kids like my own kids um can see themselves positively reflected, or my you know, the friends of my kids can see. Um, different kinds of heroes right out there, then that's what I was going to do. And that's why I reached back to my, my uh, grandma's Bengali folktales to write the series.
0: So, well, let me just jump straight to straight to this. If you Mali and the Kingdom Beyond had yeah. existed when you were young, uh, what do you think it would have done for you? And what are you hoping and what maybe are you seeing it do now that it's out in the world uh, presently?
1: I mean, I really think that, you know, I'm, I'm, when I say the word mirrors, I'm going to, um, Professor Emerita from Ohio State University, Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop, amazing metaphor about, um, mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors, right? That classic essay that she wrote. Um, and I think that, you know, lack of mirrors, which is what I was just talking about when I was growing up, not seeing myself reflected positively in culture, I think, it's, it's a kind of that narrative erasure. It's a, it's a violence. It's a kind of psychic violence. It does damage to your psyche and your soul. Um, and so I, if I had had that novel when I was 12 and it is, it's the novel that I wanted when I was 12, um, then I wouldn't have had, to always be playing that um, substitution game, like never seeing myself and then like trying to substitute myself in to these other stories that I loved, because I was a bigger reader, right? I, I loved, you know, Wrinkle in Time, I loved Little Women, I loved absurd tales, like, you know, I loved Alice in Wonderland. Um, and I think all of those tales have some influence in my, in my series. Um, I think that, you know, had I seen that sort of reflection when I was growing up, maybe I wouldn't have had to struggle for so many years with that sense of kind of self-doubt or those kind of damages to my self-worth. You know, Juno Diaz, a couple years ago talking to some Rutgers students said, um, you know, there's this idea that vampires aren't seen in mirrors. And he said something like, you know, I don't think it's actually that monsters aren't seen in mirrors. It's that if you want to make somebody into a monster, you deny them at a cultural level, any reflection of themselves. And he said, you know, I started writing with this thought that before I die, let me make a couple of mirrors so that kids like me can see themselves reflected positively. And to me too, I think it's it's this idea of like, let me just make one mirror. Let me contribute my little part to making kids like me reflected positively. Now, the thing that's wonderful and that I wasn't expecting or I didn't think through was that these books have been not just a mirror for kids who say, hey, I'm an immigrant or hey, wow, this is the first time I'm seeing a heroine who's brown like me, but um, It's the way that the window function has been working. Um, So I'm traveling all around the country with Kieran Mala and the Kingdom Beyond. I went on book tour with The Serpent's Secret. I went on book tour with Game of Stars. I'm going on book tour with um, The Chaos Curse. I do lots of school visits as well. Um, The thing I didn't expect was not just the immigrant kids or the brown kids or the kids whose parents are from somewhere else coming up to me and saying, I saw myself, or I recognize this word, or I know that food. it's the maybe like blonde little boys who are running up to me and saying, I love this series. And maybe they're loving it for a variety of other reasons, right? Maybe they're saying to me, I love this series. It's so funny and it's adventurous and there's demons, not." But in the process, they're also learning about maybe a different kind of a heroine or one of them, you know, I'll get fantastic, like heartwarming fan mail. Like, you know, anyone who's listening, who's a young person, um, authors, like, just fall to pieces over your mail. Like, so please don't think that we're not reading them. Like, oh, we're reading them. And I just delight in everything that I get sent from young readers. Um, you know, I might get sent something like, gosh, you know, I love the demon snot and I love the jokes. And and then my parents, you know, took me out to an Indian restaurant and we looked for rasgulla, which are these desserts that are described in the book. So... You know, Rob, I think what's happening is you may write a book for one reason, but it may hit readers for an entirely other reason. And that's, I think, the beauty of being a writer and a reader is that you put out something that's as true to yourself and as specific as you can into the world, but then readers are going to receive it in whole other surprising and delightful ways. And that's been my experience.
0: That must be enormously gratifying to get to go out in the world and see that that thing you most wanted to do and you've done it. There it oh, is, it's, for it's coming.
1: Right, coming isn't it, it's amazing, isn't it amazing? Um, it really is, it's humbling, it's, uh, it's utterly humbling and um, young readers, like think about being a middle grade writer, would you agree with this? Is that young readers are, en- or middle grade readers are enormously honest, right? They will tell you, they will tell you what they think. They will tell you what's going on. They will ask you, my first book, um, I dedicated it to my parents and to immigrant parents who tell stories. I didn't dedicate it, ostensibly, to my children. right? The second book I did, but you know, I didn't include my children. But when I do school visits, I talk a lot about my children. I talk about the fact that they were the inspiration behind the books. Um, I talk about the fact that I actually wrote The Serpent's Secret at the bedside for them, like with them. Um, and kids are honest. They'll be like, so miss, you said that your kids were so important in writing the book, and yet you didn't dedicate it to them. <laughs> Like they'll just call you out and <laughs> you have to be like, oh, but I am, I'm dedicating the second one to them, I promise.
0: <laughs> don't ask a middle grade reader for their honest opinion if you don't want it because you will totally, get it. Totally. <laughs>
1: reminds you to stay honest, right? I think middle grade readers remind you to stay honest um, and they keep you humble, right? They keep you both on your toes and like down to the earth.
0: When you, I'm just going to get right to uh, Kira Mala, we'll, we'll, we'll circle back. I've got more questions about your, sure. your background and things. Um, and I want to talk about We Need Diverse Books before we're done. But I'm, I'm curious, As I, I'm a little starstruck as I'm, as I'm uh, talking to you and hearing you here, because I've had you in my earbuds over the weekend listening to The Serpent Secret, um, which is just a fabulous audiobook narrated by you and 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 talking to you and i'm trying to think all the questions but one thing that i i hadn't uh, wondering because i was just listening to your ted talk i was uh, I've, I've been stalking you online um <laughs> and uh i'm
1: not nervous at all that doesn't make me <laughs> doesn't make me nervous at all
0: <laughs> okay, wait, if it helps any i stalk all everybody who appears on the show online for at least a little yes
1: bit. you had good uh, you had good reason you had good reason rob <laughs>
0: um Oh, well, now, uh, now I've, uh, all that wind <laughs> up, I've so lost up. my question. Oh, I wanted to ask you, as you were writing this series, who was, was there an ideal reader in mind? Was it younger you, present you, your children, um, all of the um, um, grandparents and, and aunts and uncles and, and, and people who are going to be reading this and, and comparing this to the, the tales they told you? Who did you have in mind? Or was it just an amalgamation of those things?
1: Um, I mean at some level an amalgamation, but the truth is I did write The Serpent's Secret initially um, for my children. Um I did write it because they were big, you know, fantasy fans. And but they, like me when I was younger, weren't finding, at least, you know, now they're teenagers, so even let's say eight or nine years ago. Um, they weren't really finding fantasy heroes and heroines, right. Who looked like them. Um, the doors hadn't opened quite as much back then. And so I did, I really started writing it for my kids and, um, it was only afterward. It was only after I said, well, I'm going to reach back to my grandma's folktales and stick them in New Jersey. And I'm going to incorporate some string theory. And I can tell you about that in a minute. Why, why I did that. Um, And then I'm going to incorporate some humor and, and, you know, make it kind of accessible to a modern reader. And, um, you know, I did all of those things really at first with my own children in mind. Uh, But I think the fabulous thing that I was saying before that's happened is I may have written these books with either myself as a young person or my own children in mind for that mirror function, right? For that ability to see yourself positively reflected. Um, But what's ended up happening is I think through that specificity, it's had just an enormously wide appeal that um, maybe even I as a writer didn't understand. Um, And it's been really delightful to see how, you know, Demon snot is a cultural unifier. I'm going gonna, gonna to put that out there as a scholarly edict. I'm going to put that out there. You know, I'm going to own it. Demon snot is a cultural unifier. People love demon snot. People love humor. Uh, people love kind of fun fantasy adventure. Um, and so you can kind of, with this series, you can come for the demon snot and you can stay for the representation, right? <laughs>
0: Hey, whatever gets them through the door, I suppose. Right,
1: absolutely.
0: <laughs> There's a book for it. Just put a demon blowing its nose right there on the on the cover. <laughs> Let everybody know what they're getting in for.
1: <laughs> you know, I mean, I was just talking to some teachers the other day and I was trying to make the case that, um, you know, we as teachers, you know, even as a college professor, um, as a classroom teacher and also as a writer, I think we have to meet our students or our readers where they are and kind of honor that. And, and I said, you know, I don't mean to make the sound hoity toity, like it, it's not fancy. And I put up a slide and I said, you know, it's just about letting our kids choose what they want to read and supporting them and what, whatever they want to read. Um, and I was kind of talking about like not being, you know, snobby about, you know, this is literature and this is not literature, but you know, if a kid wants to read a book, let them read the book. And I put up a slide that said, books about farts are books too. (laughs) 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 Because I firmly believe it, you know? Um, You can do amazing storytelling um, with really profound messages about prejudice and equality and friendship and kindness and justice, but, it can be, you know, in an adventure tale. It can be a stor- in a story about farts. You know, <laughs> it can be in all, right, all sorts of surprising places. I, I, so I think the, the point that I was trying to make to those teachers is, uh, you know, I really think that growth comes from a place where kids feel comfortable and welcomed. And it comes from a place of kind of humor and joy and I think if we can give kids that, then we can do all, like they can, we can put them in a place where they can really change the world, right? If, if we can put them in a place where we're honoring who they are and we are sharing joy with them, um, I think that enormous things can be done with that.
0: Can't say that uh, any better myself. It's, uh, <laughs> absolutely. Right. Um, What's funny is I I 100% agree with this idea of if a child is reading, leave them be, whatever it is.
1: And uh, maybe just like, like you can suggest like, Oh, you like that one? What about this one? You know? Um, and you know, I'm as guilty as anyone else. I remember my own daughter who's now 15, but when she was younger, she would read the same books over and over again and I would get frustrated. I would say, well, you've read that now 10 times in the library. Like, why don't you get like read something else? And, And then I kind of had to hold myself back and realize that, you know, books are also like familiar friends. Like it's okay to go back to them time and again, because maybe that's also doing something different for you, right? A new adventure is one kind of an experience, but a familiar adventure that you, you know, read over and over and over again, um, that's also something really special to be cherished. And I think as adults, you know, we should make space for both of those kinds of experiences. And so I kind of had to hold myself back and and stop, you know, getting on her for reading the same things over and over. Um, just because I, I was like, wait a minute, she's reading a, eh, and she's enjoying this series so much. Like, what does it matter if she's reading it over and over? again? so what? Um, it's obviously doing something really interesting to her. And and I was like, gosh, even as an adult, you know, there are books you read when you're 16 and then you read it again at 25 and you read it again in your 30s or something and it's an entirely different experience each time so you know let kids choose what they need to read
0: what amuses me is I, I had that I 100 agree I absolutely agree with that opinion for children, uh, but then when it comes to me I was oh a couple of weeks ago and I had a, I had an excuse uh, I I had a, a a story moment that kind of mirrored it so I was rereading Daredevil Born Again, and I was like really can't how many times have you read War and Peace no times but we have <laughs> time to re-read Daredevil Born Again. <laughs>
1: Well, I'm going to let you off the hook and say it was, you know, it was working for you. Something was, you know, you needed to read it again for whatever reason. <laughs> it
0: was, and I, I finished it in an evening, and then I was able to move on to uh, to a, a perhaps more challenging book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> to War and Peace? And I don't
0: uh, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, yeah, lecturing myself again in October when I reread it. Like, really? How many times is this <laughs> the same clown scary? But every time.
1: <laughs> it's exactly. never not scary. Exactly. I think Rob, you know, before you were going to ask me about um, the audio recordings. Now I remember, and I think we got we went off on a tangent.
0: Yes, I did. Uh, I absolutely love the audiobook. I am a huge fan of, um, of books read by the author. Uh, the downside of that is once in a while you'll get an author that probably should have just let a pro take over. But most of the time you're going to hear the story the way the author intended it or as close as you're ever going to get to that. So what was the experience of, of, of recording your own audiobook and how did that differ from writing it?
1: It was amazing. It actually wasn't something I was expecting to do. We had um, someone else, a wonderful reader begin to read the series, um, but they weren't able to pronounce, you know, I use a lot of Bengali words in the series and I make it a point just to use them the way a multilingual person, you would use them just like, you know, Benglish. Like you scatter them in, you don't italicize them and you just use them and you use them in context. Um, But the person was having a lot of trouble pronouncing the words. And I remember I went through this whole process where I recorded a lot of words and I sent them in and then I would listen to, you know, the professional person's recording and then I would send it in again saying like, actually it's like this and actually it's like this. And the reason we were being so kind of picky about it is um, because we knew that young readers who maybe had never heard these words before, either non-Bengali speakers hearing Bengali for the first time or Bengali speakers hearing their own language for the first time, were going to be listening and we wanted to kind of be as accurate as possible. And so then what ended up happening is they asked me to record them Um, I was very nervous. Um, My acting and public speaking experience all stems from my not very extensive high school musical theater career. So this is... <laughs> really me reaching far back into the past, uh, for some skills. Um, I was extremely nervous. It was, you know, it was a nerve wracking process in the beginning. And I'll tell you the truth. Um, it takes a team, right. And, um, the team up in Weston woods, uh, Paul Gagne and, uh, Steve Sciardo. um, were amazing and they were just amazing producers and sound engineers and they kind of really helped coax me through it and even if it was something as simple as kind of talking through well you know what do you think this you know so and so sounds like um or steve sayardo who you know is really with me at each step of the way on all three of these book recordings um I'll record a chapter and then I'll stop. And as I stop, I'll hear his, his audio will come on. And so as I stop, I'll hear him chuckling at the end of each chapter. And so having just that team behind me gave me the confidence to do it. Um, and also I felt very strongly about all the names being pronounced in the Bengali way. Um, or certainly, you know, I'm not even from Calcutta. I'm I grew up in the diaspora, but you know, in the Bengali diasporic way, um, and I felt you know very strongly about um, you know all the food, all the references that were maybe new to some listeners, um, being read in a way that was consistent with Bengali. And so I was able to do that. I was able to um, kind of think about the characters, you know, because I'm aware of the character arc. So I'm aware that somebody who may look like a villain in book one may not entirely be a villain in book two and three. Like I have a sense of their motivations. And so that was really fun too, to be able to try to do some vocal nuance. Like somebody who may seem like a hundred percent terrible out and out villain or villainess in the first book, um, you know, she may have some, you know, uh, other motivations. And so because I knew that I was able to try to put some of that in the the voices so it it's a it's been an absolutely delightful process
0: i can't i can't imagine anybody doing it uh, better better than you um
1: oh thank you thank you
0: great audiobook um
1: thank you it was i was so nervous going in i'll tell you the truth
0: well esteemed audience if you're listening you like listening to things um (laughs) go buy the book but also you check out the audiobook. It's worth your time and you'll be able to get the dishes done as well. So you'll win points. <laughs>
1: exactly. And you'll hear me being silly and making silly voices. <laughs>
0: So a bunch of questions, uh, for you. We're going to, well, let I me mean, let me, let me start with, uh, something practical about the book and then I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna talk about just the day to day of how that audiobook recording works. Since I know a lot of authors who are listening, maybe have dreams of one day doing that or saying, no, I would never do that. What nightmare scenario would that be? And we'll answer that question either way. Yeah. Um, but, uh, when you sat down for this series did you sit down and write an entire outline and this is what's going to happen and you knew all the major beats or how much did you how much planning did you do going into this
1: well you know i sold um i mean let me even back up i wrote the first book as a standalone because i wrote it for my kids i didn't you know i i didn't even know anything about publishing when i wrote it um I wrote it and then I figured out, oh, there's this thing called SCBWI. There's, you know, because I wrote it, I had written it as a home project. Like I really was very, very naive to the entire publishing process. I didn't even think I would consider publishing it. Like that's, you know, that's where I was. So the first book I really did write as a standalone and I wrote it chapter by chapter, which is why it feels very episodic um, because I was writing it for the kids and I was um, kind of thinking through, well, here's the traditional folk tale. Here's how we're going to play with it. You know, this is what this chapter, chapter arc is going to look like. And so that's the way that went. Um, when I ended up selling the books, um, I sold them at auction, which was really amazing. After many years of hearing no and getting a lot of rejections, suddenly like all the stars aligned. I had this amazing agent, Brent Taylor, who really understood what I was trying to do. We sold two books um, the second book I had not written. So, if the first book I was kind of floating around and it took me seven years because I wasn't even thinking about publishing it for most of that time, um, the second book, you know, I had seven months to draft. So I had to really get it together and come up with a new process. Um, so my first process had been very organic, very much about the kids, very much just about episodic kind of anecdotes. Um, and the second book, I really had to think through, okay, what are the things I did in the first book? What do I want to do with this book? But it was still just a one book arc. So I, you know, wasn't thinking forward. Um, And so unlike, and then I sold the third book separately. So unlike, let's say, you know, folks who outline an entire series, knowing what the beats are in each book, I only kind of understood how each single book began, began and ended. And so this is an episodic series, meaning, You can read the second book or the third book first. It's not, the plot isn't necessarily, it is a little bit, but the plot isn't quite as much hinging on the previous plots, right? So each book is a bit of a standalone plot. Um, So theoretically,
0: a fourth book with the demon blowing their nose on the cover is still a (laughs) possibility, then?
1: Absolutely. Although there is, we have not announced, um, but there may be a fourth book coming out that maybe, I'm not making Promises, a companion series. So, I will just say you that. You
0: heard it here. That's a world-exclusive bit of news right here on the Middle Grade Ninja mm-hmm. podcast. Sayantani Dasgupta Promises,
1: fourth companion No! Series. No oh. promise! <laughs> <laughs> no. Maybe about six times. <laughs> you did. You did. <laughs> Who knows what could happen? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Uh, but yeah, I tend to be a pantser. You know, there's the plotters and the pantsers, the fly by the seat of your pants. Of um, maybe with a different series, I would be a far bigger plotter. But I feel like, um, one, these, this series is based on folktales. And folktales are oral stories. And at least when my grandma, and I imagine all grandmas do this, were telling these stories, she would adapt them even on a day-to-day basis. Like if one of my cousins had been naughty, you know, suddenly like there would be a character in the folktale who had done the same naughty thing that my cousin had done, right? And it would become a big lesson. Um, and so that's why I felt very comfortable taking these folktales and adapting them to a New Jersey modern environment putting a twist on them because oral stories, they always change. They always are dynamic around the way. And I think that's also part of the reason why I've been a pantser as I've written them, you know, the first book I told to my kids as I wrote it, but the second and third, I really feel like I'm telling to myself even even as I'm writing them. So I'm kind of trying to keep that spontaneity and joy going. I I know certain beats of the arc. I know certain beats of the characters, but, um, but I don't want to get too rigid in how I, um, and how much, you know, I, I bind myself to an outline because, um, each of these books is also very voice driven and I want to make sure that I'm being true to what I think these characters would do, you know, if facing this new challenge if facing this new challenge kind of a thing. So yes, I have been flying by the seat of my pants a, a bit, not hundred percent, but a bit. Um, and then each book is a bit of its own arc.
0: Set. Well, first of all, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't mention those of you curious about Brent Taylor. Uh, he did face the seven questions available exclusively at MiddleGradeNinja.com. Check out his interview. Uh, Mr. Taylor, if you're listening, you are welcome on the show anytime. I would love to chat with you. Uh, but my question for you, uh, when you're a pantser, um, does that make you uh, a little bit nervous about starting, especially when you you... You've done book two, and then you didn't know there was going to be a book three. Now there's going to be a book three, and you sit down to book three. Uh, Does that add an extra level of nerves there, or is it more freeing because you can literally go anywhere you want?
1: Um, I mean, it's both. I think it's both. I think writing is a nerve-wracking process um, because you want to be as true – like you know, I'm imagining the Sistine Chapel, but I'm getting finger paint, right? <laughs> right? Like, there's always this disconnect between like the thing you think you're trying to create and the thing that's turning up on the page in the first draft at least. Um, so on the one hand, I think it is nerve wracking. I think writing is baseline nerve wracking, no matter if you're a plotter or a pantser. Um, for me, it has been very freeing. And so I've tried to, you know, we were talking about joy before. I really do think that um, joy is enormously powerful. I try to think about joy in my classrooms. I try to think about, you know, am I in the moment? Am I caring for kind of the souls? Bell Hooks, the scholar and educator talks about caring for the souls of your students. And I I try to think about, you know, that what I'm writing too, like, am I caring for the souls, including like the humor, including the joy, including the age of my uh, readers. And um, so Trying to tell myself the story, even as I'm telling my readers the story, um, it has allowed me to keep that sense of fun and spontaneity in the series. Maybe a different series would work differently because certainly in my other professional life, in my academic life, um, I'm extremely like, I am an outliner, like my syllabi for my classes are extremely detailed and every week, you know, it is like plotted out to the, you know uh, extreme detail. So it's, it's not that I don't do it in my life. I just, um, I think that different projects or different tones, different experiences, maybe demand different processes. Um, so maybe a different book series, I would become a plot, you know, a plotter because I know that actually as a personality, I tend to be a very, um, you know, I tend to be that way. I tend to be like organized and an outliner and that kind of a thing. Um, so maybe it would, I but I think that for me, being too much of a plotter with this series might have slowed down kind of the joy and the momentum for me as a writer.
0: So and I, I always get so nitty gritty into the weeds because I, I hope that that's what a audience wants to hear as well. Um, but I, I'm a little bit fascinated by uh by pantsers is this pure pantsing there aren't even I, I keep what i call a grocery list which is like a list of okay these seven plot points have to happen yeah. let's figure out how we get there and that's not yeah, a yeah. full outline but that's do you have anything like that Absolutely. or is it just every day let's see what happens
1: no i'm not so maybe i'm not exactly a classic pantser because i do have a sense of like okay i want these things to happen and i also have a sense of thematically, like what am I talking about? So for instance, I'll give you an example. So in the first book, The Serpent's Secret, Kush, those rhyming monsters, are kind of all categorically bad, at least in The Serpent. I mean, they're silly, but they're bad. Um, in the second book, I really had to think thematically, well, if this is a book that is about, you know, or is trying to address issues of prejudice, um, how can I, as an author, feel comfortable making an entire category of creature all evil just because of the way they look, right? Or just because of the way they were born. That doesn't seem right. And so I knew as an idea in the second book, I I was grappling with this idea of who's a hero and who's a monster and how do you identify them? And I knew that My character was going to have to go on a journey where she began thinking that it was very easy to identify who a hero was and who a monster was. And she was going to end up realizing that heroes and monsters aren't what you look like or who your parents are or what their faith is or what their skin color is. It's the decisions you make each and every day. And so I knew that I had a theme that I, you know, a thematic arc for my character that I was going for. And then I knew that there were certain plot points that I had to hit. Um, I know each chapter that there are certain kind of occurrences and as well as character growth that has to happen. So maybe I'm a mixed plotter pantser because I do have a rough idea of I have to do this. I just don't know exactly how I'm going to get there all the time.
0: Going back to that first book, which you're, I assume, writing as as it comes to you, when it's fun mm-hmm. for your children. Absolutely. When did that go from, this is something fun I'm doing, to I'm going to actively pursue publication, I'm going to join the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, and on?
1: I mean, it happened kind of slowly, I'll say, because um, I think at first I was... Enjoying it so much that then I started writing a different kind of co-written project that hasn't ever been published with a dear friend of mine from Ohio growing up, and so we decided together. Um, I, you know, the Serpent Secret was kind of just my secret home project. We decided to take this other project together to a big winter SCBWI conference, and we did, and we went to some workshops, and I think it was very gradual. And I happened to live near New York. So I was able to go in for workshops and kind of learn more about the craft and the process of, um, fiction writing. I had always written more essays and academic work. Um, and so I really feel like I was able to become a student without the pressure of knowing yet that I was definitely going to go out and publish or try to publish. This book. Um, And I think for me, I'm kind of a perennial and perpetual student. And so the draw of learning something new and being brand new at something, as scary as that is, it's always really appealing to me. And so um, the draw of, oh, I'm learning something brand new, something that I don't really know, um, was really so delightful that it did happen really slowly. I was going to workshops, quote unquote, for my own enjoyment. But in the end, maybe secretly in the back of my mind, I was thinking, okay, but maybe I can take that project that I wrote for the kids and you know, bring it forward and share it with the world. And that's what happened.
0: So how does that contrast then with book two where you've got seven months, let's make this happen. How does your writing process change?
1: Oh, it changed tremendously. Um, I had to do a lot of Soul searching, ask myself what it is I wanted to explore. Um, I had to think through, um, you know, what kind of a tone I wanted to achieve. So the second book, there's a lot of um, kind of absurdity in it. There's a lot of uh, like silly products because the second book is based around kind of a, a game show called Who Wants to Be a Demon Slayer, which is obviously a take on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Um, But, uh, so I was thinking through kind of television culture and reality show culture and, um, really being influenced a lot by, um, you know, kind of classic absurdist tales. So whether it's Phantom Tollbooth or Alice in Wonderland, my dad was a huge Lewis Carroll fan and read me, you know, tons of Lewis Carroll when I was growing up. And I think he was always really tickled by, um, or like even James Thurber or P.G. Woodhouse or people who used humor and absurdity to make comments about the world at large. Um, and so the second book, I kind of knew that that was the tone I wanted and I knew what the issues were. But this was clearly not just me floating around writing whatever I wanted to. Like I had to be <laughs> much more... <laughs> more scheduled in the way that I was writing. Um, I still, you know, I still have another job. So um, I certainly am not one of those folks. And I still, you know, I have children, I have to cook dinner. Um, I'm not one of these people who can like go and sit in a room for hours a day. I wish I could um, and have someone bring me meals that they slide under the door or something like it just doesn't happen. I, I was just telling Rob that I spent my entire morning, um, you know, taking my dog to the vet. There was, you know, this today was supposed to be a writing day all morning. I was supposed to be editing, but instead I was hanging out with the vet. Don't worry, dear listeners, the doggy is fine. He's actually right behind me sleeping. But, um, you know, things happen. So I had to be much more regimented in my writing schedule, but... That didn't look like what one thinks of, you know, when we think about serious writers doing serious work. Like I was writing while I was making dinner. I was writing on my laptop while I was, you know, the car was parked and I was waiting in pickup line to get my kids. I was, you know, people who are parents will recognize um, how you just squeeze it in. Like you just do it whenever you can.
0: How does writing and and cooking dinner work? Are you stirring a pot with one hand (laughs) and typing with another?
1: Or yeah, you know, you're, you take a break from chopping onions and you wash your hands real quick and you type. Um, it's like, uh, cooking, I think cooking, washing the dishes and taking a shower or maybe walking the dog. These are all things I would suggest as moments of writerly where you can gain writerly insight, right? When, Your brain thinks you're doing something else, but the task is fairly, you know, intellectually not challenging, like, okay, you know, I'm I'm cooking dinner, maybe I'm cooking something I know how to cook, it's not that stressful, I'm washing dishes, I'm walking the dog, we're enjoying the outside, Um, I'm taking a shower. Um, Those are moments, I think, when inspiration strikes, and so I do, I have not perfected the art of writing while taking a shower yet, or writing while walking the dog yet, but certainly... Um, if you're washing the dishes or cooking dinner, you can have your laptop open and all you got to do is wash your hands and dry them, write a couple lines down. Um, I certainly I have other friends who are writers who will keep their iPhone with them and just record right when they have an idea. Um, I'm not so good at that yet, but, um, but it's an idea. It's a, it's a good idea. Post-its are also a great idea, right? Scribble, scribble what you're thinking on a post-it wherever you are.
0: I've tried recording. Uh, I find it easier just to keep a, a notebook handy for when yeah. inspiration strikes, because Easy. if I record it, I have to go back and, and listen to my own voice and then that just ruins the idea.
1: <laughs> exactly. I I completely agree. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, so my, uh, my next question for you then is, um, what does, uh, well, what does that, uh, how has that process evolved then? Because it's, at some point, I mean, these, these, uh, you've got a, a trilogy of books and possibly uh, a companion series possibly, to come. Possibly not. Possibly. Maybe could be. No
1: promises.
0: <laughs> but um, at, at some point you have to. Do you, know, you schedule time today? Are you scheduling firm time to really sit down and get after it during the week, or is it still just as 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 you can find windows of availability?
1: I mean, it's as I can find windows, but because so I am trained as a pediatrician, but I don't see patients anymore, so I haven't. But and that has nothing to do with the writing. It's just I over the years transitioned from kind of medical education to regular, not regular, to non-medical education to graduate and undergraduate education. And so I teach at a university, but my teaching days are you know two to three days a week when I'll go and I'll have office hours and I'll teach classes, et cetera. Um, The other days are school visit days and writing days. And so I know that, um, you know, those days I may have other things I have to do, but they're primarily, the primary focus is on my writing. Um, And so for instance, like this morning, you know, things happen. The dog needs to go to the vet. (laughs) This morning theoretically was going to be all morning. You know, I was going to edit, maybe I was going to exercise, but I was going to edit for the primary, you know, course of the morning. And so, in a rough sense, I do during my weeks have a sense of, you know, okay, this is a teaching day. I'm going to squeeze it in when I can, but I do have writing days that I, you know, I'm lucky enough that I can set aside.
0: Gotcha. That was a question that I had just reading your, your bio and and everything that you're doing online. It's like, are you, do you have a time turner? How are you finding? <laughs> yeah. wish, I wish <laughs> I had
1: Hermione's time turner. Um, it, the thing I think I didn't realize, um, when I was trying to publish the books was that being a writer and being an author are slightly different, related, but different things. Being an author also means going out there and sharing your book with children, doing publicity or educational events. Um, Like there's other things involved. And I think I was naive enough, at least or new enough to the process that I didn't realize that I would not just be scheduling time to sit at home and write, which was something, that I was very comfortable with, but I would also have to be finding time for publicity or school visits or, you know, conferences or that kind of thing, all of which is wonderful, but all of which is like just a, you know, another task to how to coordinate it. Um, so, yes, I wish I had Hermione's Time Turner. It would make things so much easier, I think.
0: <laughs> well, you can't do all of this without sacrificing something. Um, Have you sacrificed hobbies? Are there things that you used to have time for that you've just had to to give up for the the meantime?
1: Um, You know, I think that I always wrote. Um, So it's been a substitute of the more creative fiction writing to the more academic writing, Um, although I still write academically. So that's been, you know, a shift, if not a substitute. Um, I think that um, for me... There's certain things that are just priorities. So the family is always our priority. I'm a parent and that's a big priority for me. Um, and so what I don't do is I, you know, I lead a fairly not fancy life. Like there isn't a lot of extras. There aren't, you know, a lot of like going out to dinner with my spouse for date night. There isn't, you know, all things I wish I had time to do. Um But mostly we look at each other and we're like, yeah, are you tired? Yeah, I'm tired too. You want to just watch a movie at home with the kids? Okay, let's do that. (laughs) I mean, so it's not like you're, it's just a transformation of, you know, date night mostly involves us hanging out at home and watching movies with the kids or something like that. You know, so it's a, you know, it's a, it's a shifting of one's priorities. (laughs) I wouldn't say I'm giving up.
0: (laughs) We are uh, recording this uh, ahead of, of time. And as we're recording this, well, we're looking at Valentine's Day coming up on us. And uh, Mrs. Kent and I are trying to figure out what we're going to do. And it's like, well, it's going to have to be something that involves the six-year-old because I said her moved. <laughs> exactly.
1: Like, and like, but you know what? Like, that's also like kind of wonderful, right? I mean, you don't get that forever. Like, I'm feeling that because one of my children is going to college next year. Um, and it's like, you know what? That's okay too. Like, that's that's it's pretty wonderful too right to be able to hang out all you know on the sofa still under under the blanket or whatever and watch a movie together it's pretty wonderful <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a different kind of relationship it's a no yeah, phase it's okay
1: yeah. hey, well because you because yours is little yeah absolutely
0: it's uh, one of my favorite things when we do sit down and we will watch television and we see some couple and we've just seen their their family life and then they're out at a fancy dinner and they're going dancing. And I'm like, TV, get out of here. <laughs> <I know>. Nobody's <laughs> doing that. <It's>
1: <laughs> they're all going, are you tired? Yeah, I'm tired. You want to just choose to stay home? Yeah, okay.
0: <laughs> you can take me to the club by about 9.15. I'm going to be half asleep on my elbow <laughs> on the, at the table. <laughs> <laughs> oh is it time to dance all night yeah let me let me get some coffee let's do this <laughs>
1: exactly
0: well uh going back to uh planning your book a little bit um with a series like this uh being that you're you're pantsing with with some light planning yeah. um by book three you've got two other books you have to honor and and hold on to even though you're going episodic do you i'm i'm fascinated by this do you keep like a bible do you keep just a a sheet how do you keep all of your locations characters everything consistent across the books and keep track of what you what you've already written
1: um I don't I go back to my notes a lot um I'll tell you something interesting because for this series this is a happenstance I didn't plan it to work out this way but because for this series I've been reading the audiobooks as I'm writing the next book, it's just like, that's the way it's worked out. Rereading the audiobook first of all, you, you're rereading your entire book out loud for whatever reason, be it an audiobook or you know to yourself, is an amazing way to edit and catch mistakes, right? I've caught so many mistakes because I'm reading the audiobooks and have to you know run and go back and try to catch the um, you know the printer before the arc or whatever. Um, but it's also been a chance for me to revisit. The world of the previous book as I'm in the midst of drafting the next book. Um, and so that's really been an amazing way for me to kind of remember and be involved in the nuance, you know, of the previous book as I'm writing the next book. Um, then I will go back to my notes. Can you, will...
0: uh, can you do that, listen to yourself read, one, you're listening to you read, yes. uh, and two, can you re-enjoy the story without going, oh, I have a better sentence, let me... St- let me call everybody and let's get the better sentence in there.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I I had to give that up. I mean, I had, you have to give up some of that ego um, because you can't right? It's already written. It's printed. It's going, you know, it's off in the world. Um, But I have been able to, um, you know, kind of enjoy the story as I'm reading it um, in a way that's totally different than edit. I mean, I'm a big editor. I'm a big believer in editing. Um, I think, although I'm a pantser, the way that my plotting personality comes out is that I heavily edit. I mean, I might give my, you know, editor, who's amazing, uh, Abby McAdam at, um, at Scholastic. She's absolutely, Abby McAdam at Scholastic, absolutely amazing. Um, she is actually pretty light handed with me, but what she'll do is she'll give me like an overall, well, do you really want to do this thing? And like, when you do this thing, this thing happens. And she'll give me like a sense, but she really knows, I think now what I'm going for. And I have been known to be set, loving my draft, giving it to her, being committed to it. She'll say three things. Hey, Sainte, honey. I liked it, but I think that you might be going for this thing. I've been known to scrap half the book in the editing process and like rewrite. Um, I... Yes, I have no fear in
0: I keep putting them on a podcast. Esteemed audience, I'm, I'm making a horrified face. Yeah,
1: <laughs> making like that emoji face with the like two, oh, with like the scream. Um, I have been known to, I mean, I'll keep some of the writing if I want to use it later, but um, I can be brutal uh, because my goal really is to make the truest best story that I can. And if I get too caught up in- words that I've written before, I won't be doing that. And so I have been known to really scrap and rearrange and redraft um, in the editing process. And I think it's because uh, my editor has such a way of showing me the forest for the trees of really saying, okay, this is the actual thing you're going for. If you get too committed to these three chapters you're actually distracting from this overall thing you're going for. And it may hurt. It may take me a couple days to do it. But, you know, eventually those three chapters are out because, you know, she's usually right. Um, And the goal really is, I think, in the editing process, you know, you've brought home the marble, but you really have to carve it to make it beautiful. And so um, sometimes you have to carve a lot. (laughs) the editing process and that's okay and I think um it may be painful but I think it's for the best for at least for me it really is for the best and that's where my plotting tendencies come out because then I'll be very I'll keep myself very strict notes of I want this to happen I want this to happen Oop, these three chapters are detracting from that thing happening up they're out you know I'll I'll go like that
0: great phrase I'm, I'm i'm gonna steal that I brought home the marvel but you still have to carve it beautiful <laughs> <laughs> so when uh, when do you have confidence that okay this is done it's time for me to stop tinkering and just hand it to the world
1: um i think you know it's hard to ever feel like that right but um but i i, I think when you have a really good partnership with an editor um and they get the edit and they say, Oh yeah, this is the thing I knew that you were going for. Like it gives you confidence. I think if I was just out there alone without my amazing team behind me, without my agent, without my editor, um, I think I would, without my editorial team, it's not just, you know, one person. Um, I think I would be more nervous. I think it would, you know, I would continue to tinker. Um, but because, you know, raising a book takes a village or whatever the phrase is. Um, I have enormous faith in my village. I have enormous faith in my, um, team. And when they look at me and they say, okay, sign, I think, I think you're doing the thing, you know, I think we're a go, you're doing the thing that you wanted to do. Um, it gives me enormous confidence.
0: Do you uh, employ anybody outside of, um, the in-house editor, your agent, their their team, do you have critique partners? Do you have a a reader that always gets your book first before the the world does?
1: Um, I do have critique partners, although I'll say um, that in the last year or so, two of us in the group have been rather busy and our group has not been meeting. But we, it's Vera Hiranandani, whose book, The Night Diary, just won the Newbery honor. Um, It's Sheila Chari, whose um, latest book was Finding Mighty. Um, And one of our members, Heather Tomlinson, also moved away. So that was a big reason our critique group also kind of scheduling fell apart. Um, But these three wonderful writers um, for years, for at least five, six years, we would meet on a monthly basis. We would exchange a hundred pages a month. Two of us would present 50 pages a month. Um, and that's, you know, been a really important part of how at least my first two books got out there in the world is that, you know, I had these three other writers who I was both beholden to, like, I couldn't like, just say, oh, no, my kitchen really needed cleaning. I couldn't finish those 50 pages. You know, I was obligated to these people, um, and I trusted them, you know, that's the other thing I think about a critique group. Um, you have to figure out what process works for you. For us, volume worked. Like we, we produced 50 pages, two of people, we read hundred pages a month. We really did, um, both gestalt kind of critique and like a bit of nitty gritty critique, Um, with one another. We supported one another in the publication process. You have to figure out what works for you and you have to figure out how, um, to find people that you respect and trust utterly. I knew that Sheila, Vera and Heather had my best interests at heart when they critiqued something. I knew it was coming from a place of kind of love competence and belief in me. And so, um, yeah, critique groups, I cannot speak more highly of them. Um, although with the last, I would say year or so, my critique group, just for various reasons, we haven't been meeting as often. Three of us just did, uh, you know, a beautiful panel in NIAC recently. Um, we meet as much as we can and hopefully we'll get back together, you know, soon. Um, but it's been, I I feel like I'm you know, the aunt to their books. And I feel like they're the, you know, the aunts or the godmothers to my books as well. Um, I can't say enough for the importance of critique groups um, for me as a writer.
0: Well, that's the kind of group that even if I I got the feeling that uh, they didn't have my best interest at heart, so there's enough pedigree in that group, I'd I'd still hang in there. How did you find such a, a wonderful group?
1: Um, Sheila and I were actually blogging on a middle grade site together. Bira and Sheila might've known each other through like a writer's workshop where they were both teaching. Heather and I knew each other maybe through a previous agent. And so we just kind of, Sheila Chari actually was the one who brought us all together. Um, and it worked. I think that other, I have not had this experience, but others of my critique partners have had the experience where other groups maybe didn't gel as well, or they didn't all work in the same way like people didn't want to read as many pages and they just wanted to chat in general and that's a different sort of a group that can be a support group or maybe it's a book club but the writers group the way we were doing it um it was a pretty rigorous process like it was a lot of reading and we were emailing each other comments um but it really worked and it was enormously supportive
0: so do you have like set meeting times
1: We did. We would, you know, each month we would, we were all parents and we all had other jobs and stuff too. So we would come up with the time for the next month and the time for the next month and where we were going to host it. Um, but yeah, we would meet once a month, two to three hours, a hundred pages a session. Um, and yes, we would touch base, but we would touch base in a very writerly way. We'd still touch base about our families and things going on personally, but um, we really tried to keep it to business. And then we would have separate lunches where we could be social, right? But we, th- that time was precious time. Like it was time for us to talk about our writing. Um, and so, yes, I am, I am so, so still indebted to them and hope that we start to meet again soon.
0: So in the hopes of encouraging everyone listening to, to go out and find, uh, find yes. themselves a wonderful critique group, um, and I've, 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 I've sat through some lousy critique groups, I'm in a wonderful critique group now, uh, and I've, 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 I've seen other great critique groups in the world uh, function, it just makes all the difference. So coming in, and you're all business, nobody's going to sit there and talk about the movie they saw last weekend for an hour and a half, and then it's time to go. Um How do you maintain that? How long a meeting are we talking? And what does that look like to keep everybody on track?
1: I mean, I think that we would still talk about the movie or whatever, but maybe for (laughs) 20 minutes or half an hour. Um, And then one of us would inevitably say, hey, and, you know, because we were all parents, it was all like, hey, I've got to go pick up my kid at noon (laughs) today. Uh, Let's get to the writing. Um, And we inevitably always did because we were there because we loved writing, you know, or we love writing. Um, and we were there really to help each other through the processes. And different, at different times of a different project, somebody might say, um, you know, this is really rough. I don't really need you guys to do a line edit because everything's going to change, but does it make sense? Are the characters gelling? Where should I go next? And so that might be a more freeform discussion about... Well, what about this? What about that? What if you made the character older or younger, or whatever it is? Um, but no, it—you it, know—the critique groups were absolutely a—it um, was like a midwifing process, practically. Like I, like we watched *The Night Diary* go from an idea to a Newbery Honor book. Like, I mean, the entire process we were together. Um, so it's been that sort of a um, committed. It takes a community, right? sort of a thing. Um, so yes, so besides my agent and, you know, editorial team and publicity team at Scholastic and all the, you know, great folks at Scholastic, um, my critique group has been absolutely invaluable. Um, but besides that, that's pretty much it. I, my kids <laughs> will hear passages, um, you know, from things I'm writing, uh, but now that they're older, right. And in high school and busy, um, often like that's, that's it. Um, it's, uh, it's a process where I have to kind of keep the faith that I'm I'm going to be able to do it and make it. Um, and, and I'm going to be able to keep like the tenor of it. And that's been a big, you know, a really important partnership with my editor. The fact that I trust her so implicitly. And um, I mean, if anybody has, doesn't know about Abby McAdden's books, she just has such a sense of um, humor and such a gentle, but thoroughly kind of informed and thoughtful and smart way of editing. I mean, I just, I can't say enough about how much I love my editor.
0: Uh, There's a question I I like to ask a lot um, because I know that uh, not everybody has a a wonderful relationship with their editor. I'm always trying to nail down uh, appropriate etiquette. uh, Etiquette. so when you come at loggerheads, which over three books, I assume has to happen at least once, um, as change is suggested, you say, no, that's my whole heart and soul. You can't possibly make that change um, or just a mild disagreement. How have you been able to successfully navigate those to produce a product that makes both of you happy?
1: Um even as you're saying that, I'm like, loggerheads, loggerheads. <laughs> I'm, to I'm like, did we disagree on stuff? Um, I mean, I'm sure we have. Why they fetch his own answer, isn't it? <laughs> right. I'm like, uh, I'm sure we have. But yeah, I mean, it, isn't that funny that like I'm a little stuck answering this question? Um, there are things that... I had a thought on, I can bring it up to her and she'll listen. And there are many things that she has a thought on and she brings it up to me and I can listen and I can really hear her. It took a while maybe to set that up. But um, I think, you know, maybe it's magic. Maybe it's just that she's such a great editor that she knew how to like communicate that to me right away. Because I remember this is the serpent secret is my first novel. It's my first foray into children's fiction, but fiction period, right? She has edited many books before. So I'm going to attribute it to her knowing how to set up our relationship. Um, I trusted her. Um, I, and I do trust her and, um, and I trust her maybe to also respect me. And so, um, if she, the the reason that I got stuck on that loggerheads thing is her editorial style is so, um, gentle that she might suggest something or she might say to me, you know, I don't understand what you're going for here. What is it? And give me room to explain it. And I might say, well, you know, Abby, I was going for this. Do you think I wasn't able to communicate that? And she might say, oh, now that you say it, I see it but here's how we might be able to sharpen that message. So she's very respectful of trying to find out what I'm trying to do and then just help me do it better. Um, I know, you know, in general, um, I know that the advice given is often, um, you know, if you're having problems that can't be resolved on a one-on-one basis, you know, go through your agent. Um, and my agent is absolutely terrific, but, editorial, that sort of editorial communication has not, happens not to have been something that we needed to go through anyone else. Um, she's just very thoughtful, very respectful, um, but also really wants to know what I want to do and wants to help me do what I'm doing to the best of my ability. And That to me is really the ideal, it's the ideal teacher, it's the ideal editor, um, somebody who is there to accompany you. You know, Paul Farmer has this great phrase in terms of healthcare. He says, you know, the doctor is the accompanier, like you are there to walk with somebody else, but they're the one doing the walking. And so in a sense, my editor, I feel like she allows me to do the walking and she accompanies me and then she asks me, hey, is this really where you thought you were going? Is this like really the intention? Um, Because actually the way you're writing, it sounds like you're doing this other thing. And then I'll say, oh no, 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 that wasn't my intention. How can we get it back on path? And so um, it's really been an incredible experience. Um, And I've learned so much just about how to, um, how to, again, see the forest for the trees with her. Really keep in mind, like what's the big picture that we're aiming for? Where are we trying to take readers? You know, what's the goal here?
0: no you have to write the companion series where are you going to find that with another editor <laughs>
1: <laughs> well i mean naively i'm hoping that like all editor author relationships are like this but perhaps not i don't know
0: oh i've met enough authors to, to know that that unfortunately is not the case <laughs> um Another question that I wanted to ask you, but I, I didn't forget that I wanted to circle back and talk a little bit about uh, string theory. Right. Um, and obviously, you you have all these uh, great Bengali tales that, that you were told growing up. But at some point, I imagine you had to do some some research um, for the things that you're writing about and also maybe pull in. Um, I don't know if you were using cultural readers or, or folks to go back through and check and make sure that you're consistent with, with what you're trying to portray. How would you navigate them?
1: Um, I mean, I didn't use cultural leaders per se because this is my culture. You know, I'm familiar with the stories. I might touch base with my parents or, you know, people from the community, uh, my children's Bengali teacher, and say, like, in the original tale, what is the brother called again? Or, like, what's the thing that happens again? You know, I might do that kind of touch base. Um, the string theory I did have to research. So, my background is yes, I'm, you know, I have a background in science, I'm a physician, but I'm not an astrophysicist by any stretch of the imagination. Um, So anyone reading my books and all of the space science in my books, please just use it as an inspiration to go do your own research. Um, (laughs) I am certainly not certified that any of the space science in my books is 100% true. Uh, Many of it is 0% true, the fantastical elements of it. Um, I, I, I have a huge fascination for space science, anytime an article comes out about string theory or, you know, the multiverse or a black hole that this thing has happened, or, you know, uh, you know two stars collided and created all the platinum in the universe. Um, not only do I, you know, vociferously read those things, but like all my friends will send them to me because they know that I'm fascinated by this. Um, string theory for me was this idea of parallel universes right it's sometimes called membrane theory that we're all living in these universes that exist in parallel and yet each does not know of the existence of the next right um i feel like it's such an amazing metaphor or a way to think about immigration the immigrant experience right we immigrants or immigrant families are space explorers because we have one foot in multiple galaxies right, we kind of get to galaxy hop. Like we know of, like when I would go to Calcutta on these summer holidays, it was a galaxy unto itself, particularly back then when the internet wasn't around, my grandparents didn't even have a telephone for a long time, certainly not a television for a long time. Like it was a, I would write, you know, these blue, like threefold aerogram letters to my friends and they would write me back letters. Uh, It was like being in a whole new galaxy. It was like being in a whole new place food different, music different, smell different, temperature different, clothing different, everything different. Um, And yet it felt like home just as much as Ohio did, where everything was, again, different. Um, So I feel like we are galaxy straddlers, we immigrant families. We, um, you know, have one foot in one world, one foot in another. Um, Multicultural families, maybe it's more than two worlds, right? Um, Maybe it's three or four worlds. And it just seemed like such a great metaphor to think about how folks with, you know, third culture kids or multicultural kids or immigrant kids, how they negotiate a multiplicity of identities smoothly. Like, you know, you go through a little wormhole and suddenly, you know, you're getting off the plane in Calcutta, or it's even a smaller wormhole and you're going from school on a Friday to hanging out with your Bengali friends at a puja on Saturday, and everything feels different, right? Um, And so to me, that's why I played with the idea of string theory. Um, I wanted my girl, Kiran Mala, my heroine, um, to have to not only rescue her parents from this other dimension in the first book, I wanted her to have to rescue herself in a sense. I wanted her to have to go back to this place from where she comes. Um, In her case, it's a different galaxy, it's a different dimension, it's not a different country, Um, but it's kind of like India, right? It's it's kind of like Bengal. She has to discover where she's from in order to discover who she is. She has to accept the good and the bad of all of her background in order to find her own strength and in order to be her own superhero. And so that was why I used that metaphor. And it's also just because I'm a big space nerd and I... (laughs) I love space stuff. I love space stuff. And I loved A Wrinkle in Time because, you know, stories and science, they're not separate. They can be together. The idea that they have to be separate, I think, is a total fallacy. You know, I'm somebody I teach in this field called narrative medicine. It's literally at the intersection of science and story. Um, So I'm somebody who's built their life at this intersection. And so anything at that intersection of science and story excites me. Um I'm a huge Star Wars and Star Trek and Lord of the Rings and all those things. I'm a huge um you know nerdy fan girl. Um I teach a class called like future on um, futurity and speculative fiction um around issues of kind of health and race. Um, at Columbia um, so it's just it's it's the thing that excites me and so that's why there's so much space science or or wannabe space science in these books
0: you must have just an absolute passion for knowledge uh, because you obviously got the, the the full scientific brain you don't you don't become a pediatrician without a whole lot of science uh and, and right brain stuff and then I I've just read your incredible fantasy story you must be in love with just learning things from from all over
1: yeah, I think I'm one of those, I think a lot of us are, those perpetual students, and that's how come, even before I realized I wanted to publish The Serpent's Secret, I was so intrigued by, like, oh, workshops, oh, I'm going to go to another fiction writing workshop, oh, let me go see this person speak, because it's amazing, I mean, it's both humbling to realize, like, oh, despite all of my degrees, I know absolutely nothing about this new field that I'm trying to explore. Um but to me, that's also really exciting to be able to show up somewhere and be brand new and have that excitement of like being a new learner. Um, so to me, I'm kind of, you know, that's, um, that's what I'm always looking for is, is the opportunity to kind of learn and grow um, in new ways. And so, yeah, a big nerd all in all. <laughs> all around. <laughs> all the best and coolest people are. <laughs> I like to think so. And you know, I but regardless, I claim it. I claim my nerdery happily.
0: Well, with so much passion for for going out there and, and learning new things, having new experiences. Do you foresee a path for yourself where uh, after you write that companion series you promised? Um, I you, did not uh, <laughs> promise. I did not promise. I said maybe. <laughs> By the end of the show, I, it'll be a guarantee. <laughs> um, but do you do you foresee yourself continuing to write novels or? Middle grade novels specifically, do you have areas that you want to branch out to? Or do you see a a possibility that you could reach a novel and say, okay, well, that's all my stories, at least for a while. Now I'm going to go do, I don't know, something else completely uh, completely different. Um,
1: I don't know. I mean, I think I'll keep writing um, because it's been... A lifelong passion. I mean, I've always written. Uh, I've written poetry. I've written essays. It's just the the genre and the form have changed slightly. Um, so I've always loved. You know, I'm a storyteller at heart, and I've always loved writing stories. Um, be they creative nonfiction or you know poetry and now fiction. Um, I do imagine um, thinking about other genres or other age groups, I won't say genres, other age groups um, in children's literature or other genres like realistic fiction, historical fiction. I've been pondering a historical fiction YA um, in my head quite a bit. I have a lot of um, family members who were involved in the Indian Revolution um, against the British. And uh, my own grandfather went to jail when he was 15 for being a part of the Chittagong Armory Raid. And when I was a young person... um, At 15. At 15, I was younger person? I was just like, yeah, he was 15. Even when I myself was 15, I was not as struck by the youth of that. When my own children were like, when my own son, you know, who's now 17 was 15. I was like, oh, you're a baby. He went to jail at this age for being, you know, he was a part of the freedom fight against the British and he was put in jail for three or four years. And um, he did his high school equivalency and his bachelor's in jail. Um, and I think about that Chittagong Armory Raid, it was in the part of India that's now in Bangladesh, almost all the way on the Burmese border. Um, it was a really important part of the Indian Revolution, but that isn't talked about a lot. And so I think about writing his story in some way. I had my father had a couple of aunts, one of whom died in a British prison for being a freedom fighter. Um, I think about all these. Um, folks in my family, um, many of whom I wish, I wish I had gotten their stories recorded or remembered them better. My grandfather would tell me these amazing stories, but I was young enough and I think callous enough that I just, I didn't treasure them like I should have because I remembered them, I'd listened to them, they were great, why didn't I record them? Like, what was I thinking? Um, So I have a lot of regret in that. Um, I feel sad that my grandparents, who shared these amazing stories with me, aren't here to read my own series. I'm really delighted that my parents and my uncles and aunts um, are, but I want to honor my grandparents in some way. So I have so many ideas. I don't. I can't imagine ever feeling like I'm done, right? I can't imagine.
0: I mean, I'm I'm, I'm sure they're (laughs) reading them right now (laughs) and
1: enjoying them. Oh, that's a lovely thing to say, Rob. Thank you for saying that. That's an absolutely lovely thing to say. I hope so, too. I like that image. Um, I love that image.
0: I tell you what, I I, I want this companion series that you've guaranteed, Uh, but the moment (laughs) I absolutely want you to write this, uh, the the, the story of your 15-year-old grandfather in the revolution. I think that would be fascinating.
1: Yes, I've been thinking about it a lot. I've been um, you know, thinking about how to, how to honor it the best. And I, it's been a couple years that it's been just been swimming around in my head. So, um, I've been thinking about like how to go about that in the best way. So, hope that, you know, maybe that's coming down the pike sooner than later, maybe later than later. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: The uh, problem, of course, with uh, with being 15 is uh, that's the oldest you've ever been. When you are 15, so you know the most you've ever known. This is the wisest you have ever been. Yeah. So in retrospect, I I I give myself uh, quite a bit of leeway of all the things I didn't know at at age 15. Um, But that and these
1: folks were like giving their lives for such a huge cause at that age. It just It astounds me. I mean, young people are today, too, throughout the world. But it just it takes my breath away when I think about how um, how much bravery goes into that, you know, just how much bravery and uh, wow, how much strength has to go into really believing in a cause and, and throwing yourself into it like that. I'm just, you know, I can't even imagine. It. And I think that's why you write, right? You, you write in order to figure something out that you can't imagine, right? You write in order, you write and read in order to make something that seems so big um, imaginable, right? To, to try to enter it in some way. And so because I'm so overwhelmed and moved by this, that's why I want to write about it because I want to be able to enter it in some way and in some small way, like pay some kind of, you know, homage or honor to it.
0: The other thing that I find, and this is probably just a peculiarity of my mind and hopefully not entirely universal, um, is that I don't necessarily completely understand how I feel about a thing until I've written about it. Uh, I may have... think that I have some idea, but then I'll see it in the story that, oh, I, I guess I think that. <laughs> there it is.
1: Right? Exactly. Like we we make things fictional to make them real, right?
0: Uh, seems, to, seems to be working so far. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's get back to the, the audio book. I promised it, and I don't want to leave esteemed audience uh, hanging. So let's talk about how different the audiobook process recording is from writing a story, because you're still telling your story for the first time for someone. Um, did you read the book aloud as you were writing and editing it? Did you already have some idea of how these characters sounded, how you wanted them to be portrayed were you, I assume you read it out loud, maybe to your children or to somebody else somewhere along the way. And then um, how did that translate into into the audiobook?
1: I do tend to read aloud when I'm writing, um, but not as much as an audiobook. An audiobook you're reading, you know, every single word carefully. Um, I did have a sense of what characters sounded like. Um, I tend to be a pretty visual writer, so I envision scenes like a movie. Um, you know, so I can hear my characters. I can see them. I can see them moving through space, and so that makes it easier to, uh, you know, to narrate it because I have a sense of what they're like. But I'll give you an example of where I, I completely, and you know, uh, esteemed listeners, you can go off and tell me um, if you agree with this. There is a character in the third book. Um, whose name is Ned, or so we think, and I won't reveal what his actual name is, um, who in the book, our character Kieran Mala, our heroine, thinks you know, this guy is from Norway. Um, or, and there's a reason behind that. The third book combines a lot of different cultural myths together. So Norse myths and Greek myths, and um, a lot of different things get played in the third book. Um, but as I was narrating it, uh, the only thing I could come up with was kind of this drawly California accent, and he was like a cool dude, and I just couldn't get beyond it. And Steve Sjoberg could saying, "So sign that's not really a Norse accent. You realize that, right? A <laughs> Norwegian accent. You realize that, right?" <laughs> and I'd be like, "I know, I know," but his personality. Is really based on this idea of him being too cool for school, and I couldn't get beyond that accent because that was what his personality was. Um, and so sometimes you get tripped up because you know a character through the way you're relating to their personality, not necessarily some you know ethnicity marker that you've like written on the page. And so there is a character who may sound like he's from California, although theoretically he's you know affiliated with scandinavia
0: <laughs> oh, <laughs> i love the idea of the sickness like well, I, was, I was fine with the demons but this this is not realistic let's
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's right i was fine with the monsters from a different dimension but this dude does not sound like he's from norway
0: <laughs> what does the uh, day-to-day how long does it take to record your own audiobook and what does your recording day look like
1: well, I go up to the Westonwood Studios, which are these classic studios up in um, Darien, Darien, Connecticut, Darien, Connecticut. Um, just, you know, beautiful studios. Um, I think the studio booth that I record in is called Abbey Road Studios. I don't know why I'll have to go and ask them now that I think about it. Because
0: um, it's, it's a great name for a studio. Isn't, that makes it, sense
1: great, to me. <laughs> isn't it great? Um, I go up there. It might take me for each of my books, three or four let's say six hour sessions, um, to go up there and six or seven hour sessions. And then I'll go back up to do, um, to do pickups, what they call pickups. So, Hey, sign, honey, these were some mistakes we caught, you know, where you said this, or you dropped a word or, you know, something like that happened. Um, because I'm the writer, I can make decisions like, Oh, I know it says he was in this sentence, but I said, he's, it's, that's okay, you know, contractions, but there are, you know, we have a consciousness that kids may be reading along with listening to the audiobook. And so we want to make it as accurate to the text as possible. So I'll go back and I'll do pickups afterward. Um, so yeah, it might end up being, let's say altogether five or six times that I go up there, but definitely three or four good six to seven hour days. Um, and so it's it's it really is entering a rabbit hole like you you're just there you're immersed in it you're reading the book um you know i try not to be on my internet even when i'm on break Um, i just try to be there and like be present and like be reading the book um and it's it's an incredible i mean it's exhausting i come home exhausted um, but it really is It's an incredible creative process. I never knew how much I would love it because I didn't know I was going to do it. Um, and it's, so it's been another one of those, um, oh, you know, I know nothing about this. I've got to learn really quick on the ground kind of experiences. Um, and therefore, you know, me being me, I have, you know, loved it. Um, It's been a huge learning curve. I listened to a lot of audiobooks anyway, but before I recorded the first one, I really tried to listen to a lot of people I liked and try to figure out why I liked them. Um, And Then at some level, you have to just throw it all out the window and speak from your heart. Um, and read the book from your heart the way you think it should be read, and and try to imagine not that you're speaking to a big auditorium, but rather that you're speaking to one child and narrating it to one child. And so that's what I try to imagine.
0: Well, this uh, weekend that child was me.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> or yes, one listener, was necessarily a child, right? Uh,
0: so a two-parter then. Once you've done this performance, um, that is. know very different than sitting quietly uh i assume alone uh or cooking and and and, and, and writing the story um does that change your perspective on the book after you've done it do you have a preference as to whether uh newcomers read the book or listen to the book
1: oh no i think um i am a big audiobook listener i read a lot but i also listen i you know i commute to my work. And so I listen to audiobooks in the car all the time. Um, usually I only listen to middle grade and YA. Right now I'm listening to Trevor Noah's Born a Crime, and like oh, he does a genius job narrating his own memoir. So people go listen to it. It's delightful. Um, and I'm learning so much about how he he's a comedian and he's so funny and he's so big, but his audiobook narration is so gentle and so one-on-one, and like, oh, it's just a work of art. I love it. Um, so I do both. I love both. I get as much out of both just at different times. Um, so I don't have a preference. I think each reader or listener to their own, um, whatever floats your boat, you know, whatever (laughs) you have time for or excites you, um, do it or do both read the book and listen to the audio. Um, because I have had um, great experiences as a reader and a listener doing both like I've listened to audiobooks that then I've had to go read because I loved it so much I wanted to experience it myself Um, I've read books and then listened to an audio and just had a whole new experience of it so um, I think to each his own yeah I would encourage folks to go do both read the books and listen to the audio why not
0: there are a few audiobooks out there where I've said, "Oh my gosh, I I I wish people would only listen to that audiobook. Don't yeah. don't bother reading it." Like *The Martian*. Yeah, Andy Weir. We love Andy Weir at Middle Grade Ninja fantastic book however you ingested um but both his audiobooks both that one and I, I can't remember the second one which is read by i can't remember the title about living on the moon but it was read by rosario dawson uh, top-notch uh, audiobook narration well, who both, did both the excellent.
1: martian because i remember hearing that it was amazing i don't think i've read the martian on paper i think i've only heard it and it was amazing i just remember it was stunning
0: his face but I can't think of his name I'm having a guy with the fingers moment but you're right you're right it it was
1: an amazing audiobook
0: narrated by RC Bray so RC Bray we love you
1: (laughs) yes exactly no you did an amazing job because I remember how great it was to listen to that audiobook um yeah I uh you know I I think that we you know in just books in all sorts of ways. Um, the only thing that I don't do a lot of is I don't do a lot. I, I like to read actual books in my hands. Um, I don't do a lot of um, ebooks or computer reading just because I do so much on the computer when I write and I do a lot of academic work on the computer. So my prefer, you know, my preference is always reading an actual physical book in my hand or listening to an audiobook.
0: Fair enough. My, my, my preference is actually my Kindle just because I can put it in my pocket and yes. it's always with me.
1: <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm extremely inefficient. <laughs> I carry books. In, I'm that lady who carries books in her purse. Um, so I carry books in my b- purse all the time. Um, and uh, on trips, I'm a nightmare because I'm always overweight because I'm sticking books in my purse. <laughs> <You know? laughs> It's the worst. And my kids and I have fights about, like, who gets to bring how many books on a trip. You know, it's a whole thing.
0: That's a good thing to fight over. (laughs) Keep that up. (laughs) Uh, One more question about audiobooks, and and we'll move on probably to Flying Saucers. Um, But... um, because uh, I one hundred percent agree with you. Uh, I, I had the good fortune as I was writing Banneker Three to be able to listen to the audiobook of Banneker One and be, oh yeah, okay, it's all coming back to me now. i'm I'm with yeah. you. Um, but when you're writing now book two, then book three and the uh, absolutely promised one hundred percent guarantee.
1: promised.
0: Does that impact the way you draft your your new book? Uh, and that, oh, this might not sound the way I want it to when I record the audiobook. Is there does that does that factor into your thinking and your writing?
1: I wish it did, um, because there are moments where I'm reading the audiobook and I'm reading some extremely clause filled or like made up, you know, with lots of made up adjectives sentence. Um, and I'm like, who wrote this? This is a really hard (laughs) sentence to say. (laughs) Or it's, you know, with a lot of alliteration in it. And it's funny when you write it, but when you have to read it without tumbling over your words, it's not as funny. Um, And every time I go to record the audiobook, I'm always like, oh, who wrote this sentence? And they're like, you did, Sayantani, read it. (laughs) (laughs) So I wish I could learn from my mistakes and not write like such long tongue twistery sentences, but. I still do.
0: Do you read out loud when you you do your revision?
1: I do, but clearly not enough since I'm still stuck in this (laughs) position. (laughs) Let's
0: see. Let's get to what esteemed audience came here to hear. Uh, Syntina, have you ever seen a flying saucer and do you believe in them?
1: Oh my goodness. Um, Let me say uh, in my parallel universe dreams, maybe? um certainly not in this multiverse um but i believe in belief and i believe in things that we can't always understand or explain how's that
0: fair enough <laughs> fair enough um let me uh so many questions that uh, i want to ask you and i'm watching our time and i know it's flying by and i don't i want to end while it's still fun so i need to start thinking about <laughs> Our exit strategy. So you're, uh, I haven't talked your face off completely, uh, but I did want to oh, ask good. you uh, uh, about your experience as a pediatrician. And wondering one, I wanted to wonder what does that bring to your writing for children? Uh, and then two, I've heard you say elsewhere, I think in your TED talk, that reading is medicine. Um, I don't, I know you said it someplace. I don't remember exactly where. Like I said, I, I was uh, reading just about everything about you getting started yeah. here. Um, so have you ever prescribed a book?
1: Yeah, so interesting. So I think the phrase that I use a lot is stories are good medicine. And, um, the reason I say that is, um, because they are, um, and you know, when I was in practice as a pediatrician, I would write almost on a daily basis prescriptions for reading. And that wasn't just me. Pediatricians and family practitioners do this all around the country, um, on, particularly on like newborn and toddler well child visits, you know, those regular appointments, you have to go at six months and one year and all that. Um, Groups like Reach Out and Read, have facilitated um, many, many you know, uh, healthcare centers around this country to be able to share with families the importance of reading out loud to children. And so what we do is we might write on a special prescription pad, you know, read with your child 20 minutes a day, or read to your child 20 minutes a day. But importantly, with that prescription, we'll hand the family an age and language appropriate book to share with their child. So they're building a home library um, and we're also giving them this very clear message. Um, like here, we're gonna facilitate how to do this. We might talk about a local library, but we're also gonna hand you a book so you can go home with a book. Um, and I think the research really clearly from a pediatrics point of view, really clearly shows early you know, reading to your children, Often and early um, increases their language uh, reception, their ability to understand language, their language speaking, their ability, you know, right to produce language. Um, it can it definitely promotes attachment, so you know the bond between parents or family members and children. Um, it increases school performance in some studies. Um, it creates lifelong, you know, lovers of books. And um, the thing that I always tell teachers is, you know, although as a pediatrician, I did this for very young families, um, that was, you know, the, the books that we had available to us were for very, you know, for newborns and toddlers, um, I would still encourage families of older kids to either read out loud to them or read with them or do a family read aloud. I'd often talk to, um, kids just about what I was reading, share, you know, model that I was reading books you know, and share that information with them. I think that's really important. My own kids, the pediatrician I bring my own kids to, um, will often talk to, I mean, she knows that I write, but she'll often talk to us about what she's reading and like, Hey, have you read this? Have you read that? She'll write us down books. I'll write her down books. Um, I think it's really important for everyone in a community to model, um, kind of a culture of reading to children. And I think that pediatricians, and that's, you know, what I was, um, a really important partner to schools and community centers and other libraries, um, because we have that, that kind of knowledge of the um, kind of biological or developmental um, ways that reading improves lives. And of course, reading improves lives in all sorts of ways as well. Um, but I think that you know thinking of a whole community coming around together, a child, you know, coming around together around a child to create a culture of literacy and a culture of reading, um, I think is really powerful. And I was happy to be a part of that community as a pediatrician. I'm happy to be a part of that community as a parent and a teacher and a writer now.
0: So what are, what are your reading habits?
1: Um, you know, I read, I think if you're going to write, you know, in a genre, you have to read a lot. So you have to read a lot in that area. Well, oh. <laughs> right. I read a lot of middle grade and YA. I read, a, you know, a fair amount of academic and grown up books as well, um, because I teach, you know, at a university. Um, so I, you know, read everything from like, you know, critical cultural theory to, you know, the latest middle grade, you know, book that, you know, adventure book that just came out. So I, you know, I read or listen to books incessantly. Um, I'm Not a huge fan necessarily of yet in my life. Grown-up memoirs, but Trevor Noah's totally proving me wrong. (laughs) Loving him. Um, Grown-up historical fiction, although, you know, who knows? Maybe tomorrow I'll be totally proved wrong. Almost every other kind of book I'm probably game for um and so who knows even those two other genres watch next year they'll be my favorite thing
0: (laughs) i'm trying to think of a memoir that i've really enjoyed all i'm coming up with is uh on writing by stephen king which is only barely a a memoir at best yeah (laughs) i I liked it because they had writing advice in it more
1: yeah no no exactly (laughs) That and bird by bird and Lamott's bird by bird love those two books
0: what uh what other books are, are those that the two go to that if somebody comes to you and says, Hey, what should I read to learn more about becoming a writer? Are those the two books you recommend or do you have others?
1: I do. Those are the two books. And then of course, um, what is it? The kill the cat, the screenwriting book.
0: Oh, save the cat.
1: Um, save the cat, save the cat, not kill the cat, save the cat. The well, if you're writing cat. a villain. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think there's a new version of it out. That's more about novels, which I haven't read. Um, I think those three are great craft books. Um, and then I think just, read slash listen to all the books you can get your hands on because sometimes those lessons just come when you're you know reading or listening to something you're like whoa why did how you know how did that person do that so interesting um and I think that you know you we tend to also just breathe some of those lessons in um even if somebody isn't ostensibly teaching us
0: Oh, nothing's more instructive than a, than a bad book. Oh. <laughs> I remember, like, oh, I know why you screwed this up. Let me go. Back. Yep, yep. <laughs> I can I trace your problem back. I, I might not fix my that. book, but I could fix
1: yours. <laughs> I was thinking the opposite way. Like, think when you read great fiction, you're just like, oh, well, how do they do that? How does that work? Um, but yeah, I suppose it works for not good fiction as well. <laughs>
0: Well, when it's great fiction, like, say, Daredevil Born Again, I'll go back and, all right, Frank Miller, how'd you do it? I gotcha. Yep, I see it. Now I now that I'm, I'm, I'm time number 10 through this, I can start to see some of the strings. I, I see where you set me up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then uh, I wanted to ask you um, about public speaking, uh, because you're excellent at it. Um uh, I, I, you know, I watched your TED talk, uh, you go around the, the country, you're doing promotion events. I saw that you were part of, uh, world, was it world read aloud day?
1: Yes. Yes. Last year I was not this year, but yeah, last year.
0: So when, uh, did you ever have a problem with public speaking or were you born ready to, to get out there and share your story with the world? And, and if not, how did you get to the point where you're at with uh, public speaking?
1: I mean, I'll say that I, um, I'm always nervous before I public speak. I always am. Um, cause I'm kind of, I think as a lot of writers are an introvert by nature, even though no one believes me when I say that. Um, but I really am. Uh, I'm always nervous. I think being nervous about something is good. I'm also nervous when I go to learn something new. I think that's the excitement of learning something new is being nervous and unsure of yourself and then, you know, gaining mastery. Um, for me, <laughs> my eyes, I'm telling you. High school musical theater will carry you for miles, miles.
0: (laughs) That must be. Uh, It will
1: carry you for miles. I would say that in my day-to-day life, um, where I speak a lot about my book, I speak a lot in schools, and then I lecture in classrooms or I facilitate classroom discussions, um, I have had a lot of schooling and a lot of degrees. (laughs) My high school musical theater experience, it's number one in having... um, you know helping me deal with the jitters helping me just deal with how to um you know emote, be in the moment you know say what i want to say um yeah high school musical theater folks it's powerful <laughs> What? Uh, what you in your i was in joseph and the amazing technical dream coat i was in the chorus but i still know all the words of all the songs and then Oh, wait, what was the book that just had Joseph and the Amazing? There was a YA book that had that play as part of the plot. Oh, was it Simon and the Homo Sapiens Agenda? It might be. It might be the Simon books. Oh,
0: I haven't uh, read that one, but now it's on my It, it might
1: asked. be. Um, and I was like, yes! Yes, for musical theater writers. Uh, Barnum. Um, I'm trying to think, what what did we do that year? Uh, oh, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, which is a Charles Dickens, like, half-written book that got made into a play where the audience chooses that was pretty amazing the king of hearts i've been in god's spell um that might be it that might be my, the entirety of my not very illustrious high school musical theater career and yet you know in so many decades later i look back on it and i say yeah it's the thing that i count on every single day <laughs>
0: Was there ever a moment um, where with, with, with all of your different abilities and talents uh, where you thought, well, maybe I'll go be an actress, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll be this? Or was it always I want to be a pediatrician? Did you have a clear plan in mind?
1: Um, I am an immigrant daughter there is no point in time that my parents were going to be comfortable with being an actress. So even if it, and I'll tell you, uh, there's an honest reason for that is that um, they came to this country with like $8 in their pockets, right? They, there was nothing, they were like, you have to have a career that you can like pay your rent and buy food. Um, You know, and I think the immigrant communities, we get a hard rap for, um, you know, encouraging kids to go into these kind of practical careers, but to me, and maybe it's because I'm a parent now, um, I can understand it. I can understand the anxiety of an immigrant who they're like, we don't have a safety net. We don't have a network of people we went to school with. We don't have a buddy who's going to get you a job. Like, that's it. Your education is it. So yeah, acting was not going to be happening. Um, At some point, did I think, oh, I'm going to, you know, be a writer from right away. I did. And I'll tell you the truth. I don't think that as a 20-year-old or 22-year-old or 23-year-old or you know however young I was when I had that thought, I could have done it. I look at these young folks who were like hitting it with their first big novel at that age, and I have so much admiration for them. I don't think I had lived enough life to know how to tap into myself, to know how to write. To, I think I was still figuring myself out. Um, I don't know. I think that there's a lot to be said for um, writing after you've had a different career or led a rich life um, because it only gives you more depth, um, or at least for me. Boy, some of these like young folks who are hitting it out of the park with their first novels, like it's amazing. Hats off to them. I was not in a position to do that at the time. And so to me, medicine was a way to kind of give back to the world. I really saw it as a way to, um, like a tool for social justice, like a way to help um, a hurting world. And that's why I went into it. Um, I also ended up realizing that medicine is all about stories. And so I wasn't really straying from my initial love of stories anyway. Medicine is all about listening to people tell their stories and being receptive to them. And um, that's why I've slowly, I morphed into this field called narrative medicine, which really is about that.
0: So when you're listening to their stories, are you Dr. House trying to listen for the clues that are gonna solve the medical mystery and and help you uh, uh, treat them or or impact that a little bit for me?
1: Oh um, yeah, absolutely. So I think when I, so now I don't see patients anymore, but I train future clinicians kind of in this idea of narrative medicine. So yes, absolutely. You're listening for clues, but I think the key is if we become too committed to like treating patients as like databases and we're just going to extract the right clues, we actually miss again, the forest for the trees. You're going to miss understanding who this person is in the context of their life. You're going to miss having a trusting attachment with them so they can tell you the truth of what's going on at some point. Um, you're going to miss, you know, maybe some really important facts that they're going to keep off the table because you're not, totally present listening. Um, So in my mind, true listening, you know, be it as a teacher um, or as a physician or in any kind of this kind of helping profession, I think is about being utterly present with somebody and kind of committing to accompanying them on their journey. Um, You know, I think that You know, it may sound sound very serious and I am kind of serious about these things. I do think bell hooks talks about like, there's an element of the sacred in teaching. And I do think there's an element of that in being a doctor and being a writer um, and being a parent. And so I think that it's really about being present with somebody's story, being willing to listen to it, um, being willing to honor it for what it is and where they are, not just as a fact finding mission. And then yes, you're gonna take the facts out. And I'm not being impractical here. I'm not saying, like, oh, when you come to an ER with a broken arm, I'm going to sit down for an hour and talk to you and let your arm fall off or whatever. <laughs> like, fix the arm. Could
0: you stop right? screaming and tell me about the town you were born in? Exactly,
1: yes. exactly, exactly. <laughs> I'm not being impractical here, but I'm saying to build kind of long term trusting, valued relations, which we don't have a lot of, unfortunately, in healthcare right now, um, I think it really requires a deeper listening than just listening for facts.
0: I'm uh, watching our time fly by, and I know I've got to go get my kid off the bus. Uh, Oh, yeah, me too. So why don't I ask you two more questions, and we'll call it a day. Is that correct? Sounds good. Uh, here's one to uh, kind of circle us back and button it up nicely. Oh, look at me putting my podcasting skills on display. Let's talk a little bit about We Need Diverse Books because you've wow. been a team member for them. So what what work have you uh, done for them? Uh, and for those that are unfamiliar, which is hopefully not anybody that's listening to this show, uh, but I, I talk to people about it on a, on a fairly regular basis and they just look at me with a blank face, we need what now? Uh, so for the <laughs> uninitiated, uh, what is the mission of We Need Diverse Books, and what did you do as a team member to, to further that mission?
1: Oh, nice. Well, let me tell you first what I've done as a team member because I want to actually pull up um, something, and maybe you can edit this out as I'm like fumbling around um, because I want to be able to talk to you cogently about um, what the. Here we go.
0: We're not editing um, anything. This is all gold. <laughs> <laughs>
1: all of my fumbling around on my computer. Okay, so what I do is I'm on the social media um, team, which means that I uh, post you know, articles and um, kind of things of interest um, around issues of children's books and diversity. Um, but what we need diverse books is, is, um, it is, and here I will read from some talking points, because I don't want to make a mistake. Um, It was started by writers, illustrators, and publishing professionals. And it was led originally by the amazing writer, Ellen O, who folks have not read her work, go out there, Lamar Giles, last, last day of summer, an amazing writer. Um, Lamar
0: has promised me on Twitter, he's coming back on the show. So look forward to that. He's
1: so great. Isn't Lamar great? Uh, Marika Uh, Niche Camp, uh, Miranda Paul, Aisha Saeed, Karen Sandler, and Eileen Wong, um, and supported by the original PR team of Stacey Lee and S.E. Sinkhorn. Um, And WNDB, or We Need Diverse Books, um, has been involved in the publishing world, um, making a real impact into what gets published, who gets published, and how we get published and supported um, in such a real way and through kind of multiple arms or, or projects. Um, for instance, there's an internship grant program that is given 44 internships to um, interns at various publishing houses, as you know. Um, it's either a no-pay or a very low-pay job, often, to be an intern at a publishing house, which is a step in to publishing. not. Everyone can afford such a job, but if you have an internship grant, you can. And 30 of these eligible interns have been, interns who have gotten WNDB grants have been hired into full-time positions in the publishing industry, which is amazing. Um, WNDB in the classroom has donated Fifteen thousand children's books. Fifteen thousand children's books, um, including Walter Award winners, to public schools around the country. Um, there are Penguin Random House and WNDB Creative Writing Awards. Um, they've provided ten thousand scholarship grant, ten thousand dollars in scholarship grants to five high school seniors in its first year. Um, there's a mentorship program. They've mentored forty three emerging authors and illustrators. Um, In 2016, the annual Walter Dean Myers Awards um, have now celebrated 24 um, titles, uh, among them Jason Reynolds, Elizabeth Acevedo, Mariko Tamaki, Jewel Parker Rhodes, John Lewis, Nate Powell, Margarita Engel, um, Akuake uh, Emezi, and Nicola Yoon. And the Walter Dean Myers Grant has honored and provided financial support to 16 aspiring creators from marginalized communities. So it's you know, really kind of doing work in, um, a lot of ways, right from grants to internships, um, to awards. Um, there've been uh, like, uh, s- collections published, like the hero next door, which was, uh, published in 2019 and edited by Misola Rude Perkovich. Um, there's just a lot of wonderful work this organization is doing and I'm involved in a small part of it and just honored, um, to, be doing so. Um, I really feel like my book would never in my series would maybe never have found a home and never been published had the culture of publishing not changed because of work that groups like WNDB have done.
0: And where uh, can esteemed audience go to make contributions and and sign up to work with? uh, We need diverse books as well.
1: Ooh, nice. Um, Let's see here. Um, so certainly you can go to, I think it's, if you can follow them on social media at Diverse Books, uh, both on Facebook and Twitter, I believe that is the handle. Um, let me just confirm that. Um, and do, 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 um, let's see. I believe it's Diverse Books. Yes, it's Diverse Books on Twitter. It is, um, on facebook it is we need diverse books or at diverse books and um to go to um donate let me see make sure i'm not saying anything wrong because we want to make sure that if you're donating, right, it's a 501c3 nonprofit, it's a grassroots organization, it's a great organization to donate to. Um, If you go to diversebooks.org, so D-I-V-E-R-S-E books.org, you can see much more information about all of the work that I've kind of briefly outlined. And you can also see that there is a donation button through PayPal for WNDB.
0: And anyone who's involved with We Need Diverse Books, uh, if you're hearing the show and you like the show and you want to come on the show, you are welcome. Get in touch with me. Let's make that happen. I am uh, very much committed to um, continuing uh, to spread the the essential uh, diverse literature um, that we need.
1: Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Rob.
0: And my uh, final question uh, is always some variation on the what is really just the laziest question. Uh, in, in some are ways, you going to ask uh, me about
1: flying question. saucers again?
0: No, <laughs> <laughs> although if you've if you've had a close encounter since I asked you the first time, <laughs> if haven't. you were talking to me and looked out the window, what the heck? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, my uh, my lazy question that catches anything that I didn't think to ask you during our our conversation because this has been absolutely wonderful. This has just been a a, a treat and a privilege to get to talk with you. It's been
1: a delight for me too. Thank you for having me.
0: But for all those things that if I were just a little bit better at this that I should have asked, my question covers all of that because my question is, uh, if there were anything you could go back or or, or a couple of things, you could go back and tell a younger version of yourself when you began your writing journey that would have made your writing journey easier for you and that might improve the journey of all the uh, authors or potential authors who are listening, what would you go back and tell yourself?
1: Oh, patience. Patience. Right, patience, young Paduan. Um, right, um, patience. Right, not uh, Rome wasn't built in a day, um, and all this time and all these rejections—they're um, giving you precious time to improve your craft and to figure out even better what you want to say. And I know you think that you know what you want to say, but y- you know you'll refine it and you'll fine tune it and you'll discover new things about the world and yourself. And, um, in an ideal world, you know, every worthy book would be found by the right agent and the right editor right away. It doesn't happen. Um, so use that time to kind of to the best of your ability and, um, don't get down on yourself, like keep going. That's what I would tell myself because it was, um, it was frustrating and having been somebody who had a different career, I would often think when I would get it, would, was getting rejections for *The Serpent's Secret*, which was many, many, many. Um, I wish I had a firm number to give you, but many, 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 like multiverses worth of both agent <laughs> and editor rejections. Um,
0: it, but by that theory, in the multiverses, they all like said yes. There you go. There you go. Um,
1: But I definitely would get down on myself and think like, hey, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe the story I'm telling isn't good enough. Um, Patience, patience, patience. Like it takes one yes. Um, And also use the time. Use the time to learn more. Um, And it's okay. Like humility is good for the soul. Like I'm telling myself that. Um, You know, I'm not telling anyone else that. Uh, But I'm telling myself that because, um, you know, I really think that now it makes me so grateful for every moment that I get to do this, all that time that I didn't, you know, that I was hearing no, I was still a writer. I was still, you know, I was still creating work, but I wasn't being able to share it with the world. Um, So it makes me very, very grateful for every moment. And, um, and, right, just don't, you know, don't give up, don't get frustrated, work with organizations that are doing structural change, like WNDB, Um, find your people, right, who believe in you, um, and don't give up.
0: Can't find a better note to end on than that. That's fantastic. Uh, Sayantani, where uh, can esteemed audience find you online? Stock you as I have. Follow you on all <laughs> social medias?
1: Um, well, on Twitter, I am Sayantani sixteen, the number sixteen. S A Y A N T A N I, the number sixteen. Um, on Insta, I am Princess Kiranmala. K I. R-A-N-M-A-L-A. And uh, you can also just go to my website, my full name, scientanidescupta.com. There is one portal that leads you to kind of my doctor academic work. And there's another portal and it's very clear. It says doctor writer. And there's another portal that leads you to my work as a children's writer. It's a picture of Karen Molly. You won't miss it. So you can click on that, read about where I'll be or recent press, um, things that have come out. (laughs) <laughs> excuse me about the book um you can also um there's also a contact uh, form there so you can also reach out to me if you're a young listener i have lots of fabulous um young listeners who reach out to me in that way
0: and as always esteemed audience find me at middlegradeninja.com download your free copy of Banneker bones and the giant robot bees at why you the book of david chapter one by robert kent they're both great um Follow me on Twitter if you want to see my one once-a-week tweet about the podcast at MGNinja. Or once in a while, I complain that the Academy Awards failed to nominate the best picture of the year crawl. Oh, alligators (laughs) never look so good. Um, (laughs) uh, So I thought we're... uh, I'm always asking our guests to sign us off with the very specific, totally ninja-like and justifies the name of the show sign-off phrase, uh, and that phrase is "Hiya and what have you." Will you sign us off?
1: Hiya yeah, and what have you.